Wrestling for the American League Championship. I don't believe it. It just continues. My oh. High fly ball into right field. She is gone. Oh, drives one. Right field. Did he do it? He did. Are you kidding me? Welcome back to the FSS Plus Podcast. Jason Churchill here. Joe Doyle is back after a long three-year vacation. It's good to see you, Joe. Uh, it's a big weekend at Future Stars, by the way. Future Star Series with the inaugural New Balance Future Stars Showdown at Globe Life Field in Arlington, the home of the defending world champion Texas Rangers. That is a JUCO event, and JUCO baseball is rather awesome in case you have never partaken. Uh Joe, I think we agree, by the way, on that, that uh, junior college baseball is really cool. I mean, college baseball in general is awesome, and I think it gets underplayed a little bit in the the landscape of sports. But uh, uh, within that, within college baseball, JUCO baseball is pretty special, is it not? I mean, culturally, JUCO baseball is one of the cooler aspects of college athletics in general. Like, there is a a, a rampant fan base in the juco community and 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 i think just in the baseball community there's a lot of people that really really appreciate junior college baseball for everything that it has produced in the past everything it represents right now and um yeah i've, I've said this to you i've said this to jeremy booth i've said this to people that have uh come to me with the idea of covering junior college baseball with more fervent nature and i say no every time because yeah. It is such an intimidating space to get into that I trust people a lot more than myself to uh, get the looks and provide the information that that people rely on. Yeah, you'd you'd want uh, you'd want to join them rather than go against them. Oh, um, without that, question, that's, that's definitely the way the way that would go. And you know, and 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 maybe we'll do that at Future Star Series. The uh, uh, it's a blank slate uh, uh, at FSS, so uh, maybe that's something we'll do. Uh, in the future, but uh, stay tuned, futurestarseries.com for more coverage of that event, uh, which is really, really, really cool. And I'm glad uh, we're getting into that uh, as a company in terms of the events portion of the company. But this portion of the company that, uh, um, you know, we like to create content. We like to talk about baseball at all levels. And that's what we're going to do today. Today's show, International Free Agency, which is uh, very, very much, Joe, in your wheelhouse. But uh Signing day was, uh, well, it was earlier this week, um, and it's a signing period, but almost all of it takes place on day one. Not all of it, but almost all of it takes place on day one, so we'll get Joe's take on the class of 2024, which should have been the class of 2023, but that's a, that's a conversation for another day. <laughs> yeah. Uh, the MLB draft, the age factor in the MLB draft, uh, a couple of months ago, or mm, I think it's a couple of months ago. Uh, Joe, you put out a uh, a model based mock draft. Part of that model for clubs is the age of the player, and I want to talk about it in today's show a little bit. The age factor, um, and, and kind of apply it to the twenty twenty four class a little bit, but just in general, the age factor. How much should that matter? How much should the age of a player uh, matter in evaluating his? Uh, well, his value, potential value to an organization, to Major League Baseball, to professional ball in particular, uh, because it is a thing. But how much uh, of a thing should it actually be? And Josh Hader has a new home 
in uh, well in the state of Texas. Uh, he signed a a long term deal. He got a little more than I thought he would get, uh, Joe. But uh, not entirely surprised. I think I'm just surprised where he landed. Hater landing in Houston with the Astros. Is that a good deal? Is that a bad deal? How does that fit? And uh, when you look at that Astros uh, roster now, kind of what are we thinking for the 2024 season? So we'll get to all that uh, as well. Joe, uh, let's start with international free agency. That's the the thing that's been on most folks' minds um, this week, at least for those that uh, that like to dig into scouting and player development and things of that nature. Some of the questions I get before we get into some of the top names and and some of the clubs that had uh, that had a big day Monday. The the international period used to be in July. It used to be July second for years and years and years. Now. Ignoring the idea that the, the fact they moved it to January, I don't really love it, but I get why July is not ideal. But the fact that they pushed it back instead of forward kind of angers me. But ignoring that for a second, this, this period, so I like to think about things and maybe I'm unique and maybe I'm an idiot. The There are only a few opportunities in the, in the calendar for clubs to add talent to their organization. Okay, you get the off season, which you can go get free agents. You can make trades. There's the first half of the season, all the way up to the trade deadline. Teams can still make trades, although free agency is not a thing during the season. And then there's the draft in July, and there's this international period. So it's not like it's this constant. Every single day, a club out there can get better. So when you get a period like this opening up, it's rather crucial to the long term health of organizations. Um, I'm curious right at the top, and this isn't something we talked about, so I'm kind of putting you on the spot here, but I think it's a good question. Is there evidence in the success of some of these players that are signed uh, during the international period? Is there evidence that teams that do a consistently solid to great job during the international period are the healthier uh, farm systems? Are the healthier organizations? Is there evidence of that, Joe? That's a good question. I, I think the best way to look at that, well, the, the only way that I can really look at that would be with a bias towards proximity and recency. Mm-hmm. Um, the Los Angeles Dodgers are one of the best teams in baseball in mm-hmm. in scouting the international scene. And I think the other crucial part of this is developing the crucial the the international scene like there is a, a special tool that goes into developing a 17 year old from toolsy and talented and twitchy into an actual major league baseball quality level player mm-hmm. and i think the dodgers do a really nice job of that some other teams like i think the padres have done a nice job of that but they've also landed some premier talent the mets i think do a a reasonably good job with that the issue with the mets is they kind of at least of late, um, block those talents from being able to contribute at the at the big league level. So, um, and Seattle. I mean, I, I guess you'd be remiss not to bring up Seattle. Seattle. It seems every year they draft or they 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 land one of these international free agents. They all have been great. They've all developed great. Noel V. Marte is a top twenty five prospect in baseball. Julio Rodriguez is a top ten player in baseball. Um, you know, you look at the the reports on Felnine Celestin right now. That's been fantastic. So I think Seattle does a really nice job of developing that type of player. So to answer your question, you know, I don't know if there's a team that necessarily 
I don't know if success on the international side translates to a healthier farm system, but it does seem like there are haves and have nots in terms of teams that do land those players. And Mm -hmm. the haves just generally seem to be better, well-run organizations. Just in general, like it almost has nothing to do with the international part, but because they're good at other things, they're also good at this. Yeah. I mean, I think if, if you're an organization and an ownership group and a front office that understands the importance of acquiring and, and the value proposition, the value add in, in adding young controllable talent through those measures and investing in the department, this, the international scouting department that is so crucial in developing the relationships to land those players. If you're an organization that un- understands the importance of that, I, it seems like those are the types of organizations that do better. I mean, you look at some of the organizations that have struggled on the international side. In a lot of ways, they're generally uh, lower TV market, smaller market teams that have kind of been middling for a long time. Give me a for instance on that one. Like what team sticks out the most that kind of fits that mold that you're talking about there that have struggled a little bit? You know, I think a team that stands out is the Detroit Tigers. I don't think the Tigers have really done a very nice job over the last 10 so hang years, on. 10 plus years. Hang on. I'm I'm sure you're right. You are right. That team spends money though. Historically, that team has spent money. Now they went through this little period recently where you know they were trying to build it back up with the Casey Mises and the Matt Mannings of the world, but they went out and signed a signed Javier Baez to a bunch of money. So that's not a team without money, and they they're spending more money this winter as well. That's not a team without money and without a history of spending money. So there's a difference. There's a difference between spending money on the free agent market. In injecting major league talent onto your payroll and investing in the practices and processes that are necessary to actually build out a sustainable organization that's built from the ground up. You look at like the difference between like, look at the Dodgers, the Dodgers not only spend money on infrastructure and, and leadership and, and things like that. They, they spend money at the biggest, at the highest level. And that's why they're so successful. But on the other set, uh, other end of that spectrum, the Tampa Bay Rays don't spend anything on free agency, but they hire the brightest minds and the the biggest up and comers in the sport. They poach them away from other organizations and have them lead their amateur scouting and international scouting departments. And it's it gives them a a competitive advantage on the teenage side of player acquisition, if you will. There are teams that are in the middle that spend a lot of money, but don't have the processes and practices in place to actually make it an efficient operation uh, when it comes to player acquisition on the amateur side. So I just don't think Detroit has done a very uh, good job of one, acquiring those players, but two, you look at the the big league club uh, developing their own talent uh, that they've drafted in the, in the rule four draft either. Yeah, that's uh, it's been a little bit of a challenge. Now we'll see if that turns around. Uh, they took uh, Max Clark a year ago. They got some guys coming up: Jackson Job, Jace Young, uh, Kevin McGonigal, Colt Keith. Some guys. We'll see if they're starting to turn that around. But that's a really mm-hmm. good point. One thing you notice when you look at uh, Detroit's farm system is there are not very many international free agent signings uh, uh, from the amateur side over there that uh that seemed to be kind of peaking its way you know toward uh toward the major leagues so uh that's a really good point uh by the way a little segue here joe your organizational top 30s are getting close i just wanted to tease that so if you're looking for prospect rankings joe's got you covered we'll get those going uh sometime in the middle 
of uh, of February. So we're just what three weeks out. We're certainly uh, yeah. I'll give you I'll give you another segue. My top one hundred overall is going to piss off a lot of people. (laughs) (laughs) I love it. So so let me ask you that is it is it going to is it going to piss off me? Uh probably not. I mean, there's a guy on the top one hundred that nobody else has on their top 100 for public boards. Um, okay. okay. And it's a Seattle guy and I know you live out in Seattle. So, but there are guys that people it's, have in the top 50 that won't be on my board. Yeah. Right. I get it. I get it. This is, this is why we do this sort of thing. This is interesting. And this one, so Detroit, that's, uh, that's really interesting because they're kind of a mid market, but they have spent money, but you're right. It's been free agent money. It's been big league free agent money on guys like Baez and, uh, and things of that nature. All right. So, um, it was Monday when all of this came down. Uh, all those agreements are uh, for international, uh, for amateurs. All those, all those agreements are in place, and essentially Monday becomes the first day they can sign or that they can agree and officially sign, and those usually get signed within 24 to 48 hours, if not right on that day. Um, talk about some of the top names uh, and, and where they landed, and then we'll, uh, and then we'll get into uh, which teams you, know, you kind of think did the, did the best in this year's uh, – uh, international cycle. Yeah, I mean, the top guy, I think most people would, would agree. Leo Dallas DeVries is, he's an exceptional player, six, one, 190 pounds, uh, still just 17 years old, already very physical, all of the traits and actions that you could ever ask for, um, at the shortstop position, he goes to the Padres. I, I'm very excited about this kid. I, I mean, he's got all of the tools necessary to be a five tool, uh, superstar in the league. Now, the, the question with every single one of these international guys is always, will he hit? Like, will they hit? And DeVries has been more of a showcase pony than he's been an actual tournament performer. But I think most people mm-hmm. buy into the tools and the uh, and the athletic ability for him to be, uh, you know, a top 25 prospect in the league uh, just one calendar year from now. So he's yeah. the guy that immediately stands out. Right, so um, the Padres, really, really quick yes. before you move on to the next player, the Padres have they done, seem to know what least, they're doing. At least recently, you get <laughs> Ethan Salas last year, uh, yeah. but it doesn't start there. It's uh, what uh, Samuel Zavala a couple of years ago is mm-hmm. that 2021 class, I believe, and they got some kids that they didn't spend a whole lot of money on. Um, mm-hmm. uh, Iriarte, uh, the uh, mm-hmm. the right hander who's getting close to the big leagues, I think he cost them 300 grand. So it's not just the 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 low hanging fruit because some of these top the top guys are generally easy right that's not there's not a whole lot of skill uh getting ethan solace wasn't like a whole lot of scouting skill right joe because i think that's the thing that that maybe there's some disconnect that oh like how did the padres unearth ethan solace and the new york yankees couldn't that that's not really the way it works right no i mean and this is a topic that's been discussed ad nauseum whether good or bad like a lot of times landing an international prospect has to do with like three things. One, does the player know who your organization is? Does he like the players that have come through your organization? Does he like the city and the weather? Um, is he just generally intrigued by playing for that organization? The San Diego Padres, I've been to San Diego a few times. I like San Diego quite a bit and I would love to live there. <laughs> 
most overrated so, city in America. Come on, man. But Come on, but man. you know, like if so, but yeah, you get the sun, you get the Padres, you get the uniforms, you get the you know. There's some recent oh, success there. Awesome. There's some guys that came. Fernando Tatis Jr., Manny Machado. I get it. Absolutely. If you're a 15, that's, 16 that's year old right kid, there. that's what you're looking for. Absolutely. That's the point right there. Like if three years ago, two and a half years ago, let's say uh, Ethan Salas was 14 years old, and as we know, I don't. I said this on my podcast, Jason, and I'll say it on this podcast. You can be mad at me all you want for reporting these deals 18 months prior to them actually happening because technically these deals can't exist. Handshake deals exist. Get over it. I'm reporting on them. I don't care. I don't report on the bonuses because I think it puts some of these kids and families in a place that they shouldn't be at a young age, but I'm going to report on the deals. Don't care. Um, But if you're a 14-year-old Ethan Salas or a 15-year-old Leo Dallas DeVries, and you see Fernando Tatis and all that flair and all that fun and all that personality and Manny Machado, you see those guys doing their thing in San Diego. Pretty dang hard not to be interested in playing in that market, right? It's the same thing that we heard about Julio Rodriguez. Like Julio Rodriguez loved watching film of Alex Rodriguez and Ken Griffey Jr. and Felix Hernandez. Those are the sorts of things that draw these essentially, for lack of a better word, kids Mm -hmm. toward signing with these teams. Now, ultimately, it really just comes down to the academy that they're training at, having relationships with teams that have been built up over years and years and years and years and years. Mm -hmm. And the academies, I don't want to say brokering deals with the organizations, uh, by way of the player, but that's you could probably say they broker the relationship between you could say and they take a cut. And they take yeah. a cut. Um, but the key is like, does the kid like your organization? Is he drawn towards your organization? And do you have a good relationship as the academy with that team? And that's why the same teams win in, in international scouting and, and over and over because they have long, long, long standing relationships with these academies and communication lines are open and you know, that's why you see the Dodgers and the Padres and the Mets and the Braves and the Yankees winning at the top over and over because they, they've been there, they've done that, and, and they're not having to start from the ground up. It's and so a the long other, process. The, the whole, that whole idea isn't different domestically either in the draft. The, the only difference there is that team may not get the opportunity to, to, to draft that player, but the same stuff happens. You know, coaches, mm-hmm. you know, whether it be, for, whether it be all the way from travel ball uh, or the uh, the showcase circuit, uh, those people have relationships with scouts and, and front office folks that are like, hey, this kid is for real. He's a great kid. He's a great student. You should see him work. And all of a sudden that team's on that player when they otherwise might not be. It's because of those uh, relationships. Um, so you mentioned uh, the number, the, the top guy. How far in a way better um, is he? Than you know, like Perdomo or Santana or Cruz or Sanchez, kind of that next group of guys. Is he far and away? Is DeVries the, the far and away the the number one guy? I think he's far and away the number one prospect, just in terms of the ceiling. I, I for me, my number two prospect was Emil Morales, who went to the Dodgers, and he's a full grade better uh, in terms of like the future role and projection in in terms of what he could be than Emil Morales, um, but. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't look at anybody else on this international scene. I don't look at um, Perdomo. I don't look at Fernando Cruz. I, I don't look at, you know, Adolfo Sanchez or Paulino Santana. 
I don't look at any of those guys with with superstar in my eyes. Mm-hmm. Leo Dallas DeVries could be a a superstar if if he hits. And, and he's that's, got that's a, the key with all these guys. Like, and he's got an absolute eighty grade first name, by the way. Oh, Leo yeah. Dallas. It's like Odalis, like Odalis Perez, but with Leo at the beginning of it. I mean, we got to get that on television, man. His like, name is so. so cool that they took his last name and they split it in half. <laughs> in That's case you're wondering cool. how that how that rolls, it's DeVries, capital D E space capital V R I E S. DeVries. Yeah. Yeah. Leo Dallas of Vries. What is Vries in, in Spanish? Do we know? I think it's fries, and fries are good. Oh, that is incredible. That might be the greatest <laughs> name. That's the greatest name in sports history. Are you kidding me? Uh what's he about? Six two, one eighty-five, something like that. Um yeah, uh, switch hitter got a legit chance to switch it. I mean, I know he's seventeen, but uh, that's the. I, idea I would just make him. Li- I would just make him hit left-handed. It's so much better left-handed. Yeah. Um, but hit power run. 17. Everything's average. Everything's average or better. Oh, it's 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 a six glove. It's a six run. It's six raw power. I, I'm not gonna. I think it's kind of a futile exercise for any website to put a hit tool on some of these guys. Like you're just really basing it off of the swing. They're, yeah, you know, like these guys haven't do. seen anything, so yeah. I'm not going to do that. But like, it's six run, it's six raw, it's uh, 55 arm, it's six glove. Like, it's so good. Yeah. Honestly, I think the conversation really should be not how he stacks up against everyone in this class, but how he stacks up against Felney and Celestin from mm-hmm. 2023. Well, well, well. I like, uh, I like, I like Devries. Um, I like Devries swing more than I like Celestin's swing. Mm-hmm. I like Celestin's actions a, t- a touch more at the shortstop position. And I think the frame is a little bit better with Celestin to actually play mm-hmm. the shortstop position. Um, but man, I genuinely think it's a toss up. And if you were to give me the opportunity to take one right now, mm-hmm. I think I would take DeVries because I think the swing will adapt to premium stuff a little bit quicker. And uh, for those of you unaware, uh, Felnit Celestin was the shortstop the Mariners signed in last year's class. Uh, he was the the top shortstop, but the second, generally the second overall player with uh, with Solace being the clear number one in uh, in last year's uh, class. That's uh, interesting. So it, it, I think something that's interesting here is like you have to take these these shots just like in the draft. I mean, these are. These are shots that cost you $100,000, $500,000, $2 dollars $3 million, $4 million. These are easy shots to take if for me. If, if you're a club, you go take these shots just like you would, you know, the top, you know, 10 rounds of the draft. But when you look back, um, you go back to, you know, 2016 for just for example because it's because it's eight years it's plenty it's that's plenty of time. You go back to 2016, the international class. That was the year that uh that Luis Robert Jr. was was the dude. It was eight years ago. He was 18 years old. He was the number one guy. Do you remember who the number two guy in that class was, Joe? Was 16 Puisson? No, no. Was that? But that's 15, a, but that's maybe? but that's also uh, also a good example. Um, who was uh, two that year? Yeah, it's uh, it was a shortstop. I'm giving you hints here. You're going to run into it, but my, the point I'm trying to make, and this is this was the year with uh, uh, with Ruiz and and Perez, 
um, and uh, and Vladimir Gutierrez and and Lourdes Gutierrez. And right, and Lourdes Gurriel Jr. was the older international free agent that was ready to hit, you know, ready to to, to get to the big leagues. Essentially, um, the the point I'm trying to make here is like you can look back on some of these years, 20, 2018, Um, the number one guy was Victor Mesa. Was it you Kevin Maiton? Or no, yeah, I think he was, yeah, it yep. was Kevin Maiton. Exactly. Yep, he was the number two guy, and it hasn't worked. And it, so the the attrition of when you when you're looking at rankings, it doesn't matter whose rankings you're looking at. But when you're looking at rankings, the attrition rate in international free agency like this is pretty significant. And you yeah. can see why. These kids are scouted at 14, 15, 13, 14, 15 years old. Agreements are made before they're 16. Um, a lot's going to change. They're going to change physically. They're going to change mentally. They're going to change emotionally. You just never know how this is going to happen. And we are the difference between this and the draft is we are asking these kids to come from Venezuela and the Dominican Republic and other places in South America and Central America and sometimes Cuba. And they're coming to the United States where their first language is not English and we're asking them to thrive. And it's hard, man. Like I can't yeah. imagine at my age trying to do that. So I'm not trying to bury these kids, but uh, it does seem like Joe, and 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 I'm hoping you can shed more light on this. It does seem like more and more the last four, five, six, ten years, teams are trying to um, trying to design environments, developmental environments that yes. include that include culture, and trying to really help these kids along instead of, well, you're you're in Florida now. Like be a big leaguer because that's kind of so what used to happen, man. Like it's like I'm so glad you, you go, and it's up. like, hello, this is a 16 year old kid that you just gave two million dollars to, who's left his family for the first time. He's thousands of miles away, and he's just supposed to navigate this. Like teams yeah. are getting better at that, right? Well, I think there's a lot of different ways this, this entire process. The hit rate has improved. Like for one, and I know it's this isn't on the uh, like on the culture side, but since like 2018 scouting directors and cross checkers internationally have been able to take mobile track man units to these academies and actually get like measurable readings on what these players bat speed is and exit velos is and they know what sort of a player they have with the bat uh, or at least what they're capable of and i think that goes at least um into it a little bit but like I, I look at some of the best organizations, like we talked about the Braves and the Yankees and um, the Dodgers. A lot of these organizations just require that the players stay in the Dominican Summer League or overseas, regardless of if they're hitting 600 with 10 home runs for the yeah. most part. They require they stay at, stay there, get assimilated to professional baseball, get assimilated with their new teammates. And more importantly than anything, go through life coaching and go through English lessons. They take English if they don't know how to speak English. It's a requirement. And they still go to school in a lot of cases. So I think that's a really big part of this. Like they can't just, you can't just trust a 17 year old who in a lot of cases has only ever been exposed to the chains and the cars and the houses and the women that come with major league baseball mm -hmm. and not expect them to just go cook all of their money on that right away and <laughs> and forget about what their responsibilities are yeah. as a as a as a kid as a player mm -hmm. as a as a professional so i think organizations are 
taking it a little bit slower with most of the players that they can. Now I'll say the immediate guy that comes up, everybody will bring this up. Ethan Salas was in triple a at 17. Ethan Salas speaks fluent English. He trained in Florida for much of his life. Mm-hmm. He is in a lot of ways, a more domestic prospect than he was an international prospect. Yeah. So, I mean, he was um, born in Florida. For crying out loud. Yeah, he he trained in Orlando since he was like 12. I mean, yeah. Ethan Salas was literally seeing 97 mile an hour heaters as, as a 14 year old. Yeah. Um, I mean, his brother came, came through, came through very much well, an so. yeah. outlier. Yeah. But to your point, teams are spending more money on on the, the bare essentials, like just feeding these guys like they need to be fed and coaching and financial advice and, you know, um, English lessons and schooling. Like, I think that's critical whenever you kind of uproot a kid yeah. at the age of 17 into a profession, which can't be yeah. understated. And when those kids that are that are from and have lived their whole lives in Venezuela or Dominican, I, I think Julio Rodriguez is a great example. It's remarkable what Julio Rodriguez did. Um, he gets signed. Uh, he does his thing. He performed. I remember seeing him in, in, in 2018. He was in Class A West Virginia as a as an 18 year old, and he was different from the start. And not even really like in terms of like tools and performance. His he was so comfortable there, and it's because he could communicate with anybody, and that yeah. is such a big thing. Being able to, you feel like you're not lost, you're not nervous about anything, you're going to be able to help yourself. Um, but he just truly loved being there, and he was able to uh, to relax. So good on the Mariners, but in in that 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 case, it really seems like Julio and his family did a lot of work to prepare him for something like this. And it's gone a long ways. And it's like, like we look at Julio Rodriguez as a, he's a great major league baseball player, but, uh, and sure he has an accent. He's 23 years old or whatever. He's been in the big leagues two years. Uh, he's been in the States five years, but he speaks fluent English mm-hmm. and, and has for a long, long time. And when you see kids do that, uh, it's really, really impressive. Um, and, and we're seeing that more. And I think, um, because we've talked about it, and I talked about it last week on the show, the uh, the idea of international free agency, it's not a perfect, you know, transactional period. And I've talked about maybe it probably should be some kind of draft instead, but it's getting better. Like Major League Baseball is spending resources and energy into it. Now, granted, they're doing it for their own good, but it's yeah. also good for the kids, right? Because so, I think there's an, an, an and I think there's this uh, this belief out there that it's this like the whole process is this really kind of sleazy, um, you know, take advantage of these 14, 15 year old kids and their families kind of a situation. And, and I don't know. I don't know that that's fair. And I don't think and, and I think you agree with me that, that that's really unfair at this point. I think a lot of that junk has been cleaned up over the last, you know, 10 to 20 years. And this is a much more upfront uh, uh, you know, kind of above the ground sort of process where these kids and their families are are treated a lot better than you know because we heard of everybody heard about this. Scouts were basically stealing money from the players and yeah and all kinds of lies and garbage and like like that has been cleaned up and and the league and and the clubs involved are a big part of that. Are they not? Yeah, I think you laid it out great. Uh, I think a lot of things have really really improved over the last even three to five years. And for those of you 
listening or, or watching that don't know how this entire system works. And there are outliers, there are exceptions, there are always going to be under table dealings that make the make the system look terrible. But long story short, trainer, agent, whatever you want to call him, finds a kid in the middle of nowhere, spends six months with that kid figuring out if he's a real deal athlete, right? They then take that kid, depending on that kid's level of talent, and will essentially sell his rights to an academy for, let's say, $50,000. Now, when I say sell his rights, what they're actually doing is affording that player the ability to train at an academy where he will be seen by every single organization. And then the, the, the I guess the nasty part of it is the academy will then sign a deal with the player that says, hey, we are going to take 30% or whatever. It could be much lower. It could be much higher of your signing bonus when you sign with a team. So a broker to the academy for $50,000. Let's say the academy then gets that player a deal for $400,000 with the Orioles. The player ends up taking 260 of it. The academy takes 140 of it. But my whole thing is like, what other opportunity would that person or player have had to earn a quarter of a million dollars yeah. playing baseball in front of scouts like that's such an enormously opportunistic opportunity that i think mm -hmm. gets left behind and what we talked about five minutes ago is the important part i think a lot of people see this system as okay teams pay ten thousand dollars for a player that player never makes it out of the dsl they crap out and they're just left behind in the world well they're not i mean that player made seven thousand dollars in that in that training uh, or in, the, in that mm -hmm. signing. But also in those years, they got free food at the academy in some cases. They got English lessons. They got free schooling. They, they trained there for years. Mm -hmm. And a lot of times those academies provide better educational opportunities and not only that, but nutritional opportunities than they would have received otherwise in, in, in a small town. So yeah, yeah like... At the end of the so day, it's, when it's you not look at perfect. It, it's, it's not, not perfect, perfect, is what you're saying. But it's and it's think, significantly better, and it's it, and it is above board. Is it nasty? Right? Is yeah. it nasty that and maybe nasty isn't the word? Is it ethical that an academy signs up a 13 year old and his mm -hmm. family to, in a few years, take 30 percent of a signing bonus? It's a heavy number. It's a yes. very big number. Yes. Would that player have gotten even 20% of that deal had they trained at home and played in men's baseball leagues? No. No. Like they just wouldn't have been seen by enough play enough teams to have the leverage to negotiate a deal. Nor would they have the relationships with the academy to broker the idea because the academies have the relationships with the teams and the teams trust the academies to place a dollar figure value value on that player. So is it a enormous capitalistic operation mechanism yeah. yes but so is major league baseball and it's kind of what affords so many of these kids yeah. these teenagers the opportunities to make money that they've never would have made so uh, i'm going to ask you some questions that a lot of us already know the answers to but i think they're important is there a cap i'm not talking about the bonus pool for the teams is there a cap on how much a player can be paid in international free agency no. Okay. So 
there's an advantage there. There's no cap. Like if a team, if a team happens to have $25 million in their bonus pool, they could give that all to one player. That can't happen in the Major League Baseball draft. I right. mean, technically, could could a team give their entire yes, but it we know it'll never happen. We know it would never ever happen. If a team saw a special kid in international free agents, they're only signing five to ten kids. They could decide, you know what? Let's give this kid our entire eight million dollar bonus pool, and we'll just work off of that. In in the draft, there are twenty rounds. Uh, it's slotted. There's a lot of stuff that would happen, like the league and the other teams would frown on a club saying, "Hey, you got you have eight million dollars in your your draft pool, and you're going to spend all of it on your first round guy, and you're just going to sign a bunch of twenty thousand dollar you know college because after it would just never happen." Yeah, I could see that happening at the international level if there was a special kid and a team like the Twins or something got a special, unique opportunity. You could see that. So I like that there's no actual cap on the international from, from a player standpoint because even though it's not necessarily a rule domestically here with the draft, there kind of is. So yeah. it's kind of an advantage you know, that they have over, over the domestic kids. To your point about, and maybe this is a good segue, does an international draft make sense? I think it does. I think all of the mechanisms that are currently in place, the the broker to the academy to the to the to, to major league baseball, I think all of that can still exist. Mm -hmm. I think trainers and I think the entire ecosystem of how that works internationally could still make the same amounts of money. Mm -hmm. I actually so I kind of think I go back and forth on this. On one hand, I look at it like by not having a draft, you are giving this 14, 15 year old and their family an iota of power by telling mm -hmm. them where they want to sign, which is yeah. more than guys in the amateur baseball draft have. Right. But on the other side of it, part of me is like, well, these 15 year olds, they have no idea what they're doing. They, they don't really know anything about the organization that they're signing with outside of, mm -hmm. I really like Fernando Tatis Jr. So, Right. I think I think in both cases it could work, but I do tend to, to veer toward let's not have an amateur draft, even though the talent discrepancy between the top teams and the bottom teams is mm -hmm. pretty vast right now because of the relationships that have been built. It does give the families and the player at least one opportunity to choose where they're going to play, which I think is is a good thing. Yeah, the... The biggest reason I want I want an international draft for those kids down there. Um, the the biggest there are lots of reasons I went over that last week, but the biggest reason is for me. Like think about think about Perdomo for example. Like think about him. Like maybe they think it's better to go to you know like the Yankees and the Mets or the Red Sox or whatever it is. But is that really better for the player? Like they're never going to know that. Like they may have a choice, and you you were hitting on this a second ago. They may love the idea. Like like uh, 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 Leo Dallas may love the idea of going to the Padres, but that you know he probably has no idea whether that's the best place for him to be. Agree. You know what I'm saying? And and not that the draft fixes that, but what the draft will do is like if you were to get drafted by I don't know who had the worst record in baseball last year, the A's. Oakland, if you were maybe. If you were getting drafted by the A's, I'm not saying that would be a good thing from a developmental standpoint. I'm not saying that because I don't know that it is really. Uh, right now, I'd say 
probably not. But the chances that you're drafted by someone who's going to give you opportunities and you're not going to get traded a bunch are those teams that draft at the top. Like, think about how how seldom the the Pirates trade prospects. You know what I'm saying? And mm -hmm. how often the Reds trade prospects and the A's trade prospects. They're usually the team trying to get prospects. So you're more likely to stay with that team as well. And uh, I believe it was 2015. There was a study, uh, and I think Major League Baseball partially commissioned the study. Players that stay with the same team until they reach the big leagues have more success. That's not totally exact believe science, but have more success. If you bounce around before you get to the big league, you're 17, 18, 19, 20 years old, and you get traded once, twice, three times, like that's not that's not good for uh, for development. So I don't know. I just think like maybe there's some advantages there as well. But it does it it does kind of disperse the talent more evenly in Major League Baseball too. But I'm with you. I'm certainly not going to whine about the fact that that these players and their families have have a little bit of a, a choice here. Um, yeah, there is one other thing. And I like that. One other thing that I think is beneficial to the player, at least in this situation, is if you are a superstar, 14, 15 year old, usually I think they're usually 14. Mm -hmm. If you're a super, let's actually use Jose Perdomo as an example. And you can even throw Brandon Maia from 2023 into this. Um, Brandon Maia got $5 million in 2023. Jose Perdomo was the number one paid player in this past class. I'm trying to remember what I think he got five and a half, five point six. 5.6. Mm -hmm. um, I can tell you that in speaking with scouting directors now, Perdomo wouldn't have gone in the top three in a international international draft. And Maia wouldn't have gone in the top eight in an international draft in 2023. Mm -hmm. That being said, they both negotiated years prior bonuses that are not reflective of where their actual upside was in their class. So outside of their remaining handshake deals where the New York Yankees picked 24th in this international draft, and they're still going to pay Brandon Maia $5 million and try yeah. and figure out the money situation later. Outside of that happening, which I don't think ha would have any chance because you would burn bridges by having to cut other players that you have deals with. Um, it gives power to the players by even if they regress, they still have these deals on the table. It takes power away from the teams from being able to walk away from these deals if they feel they've been soured. I think with a draft, though, you don't have those deals. I think that's what would happen. You just wouldn't have those deals. There would but that, be a that's tighter. My, that, that's my point. There would be a tighter that's my value. Point but is, somebody, but somebody would get that money though. It's not that the money would go away. It's just that the money, instead of Perdomo getting that or, or whoever, it would be the player that that team decided to actually take at twenty four. That player would be getting that money. You know what I'm saying? Because yeah, I, I would imagine if they ever true. did an international draft, it would be basically just like the the domestic draft, the Rule Four draft, where there's slots and slot values and stuff like that. I would just imagine it would go. So some the somebody would still get it. You know, so uh, I just don't think that that those early negotiations would really just take place anymore. There'd be no need for it. It'd be like, well, we don't know we're going to get you. We don't well, know if we're going to get a chance I, because the, the Red Sox might take you at 17 and we pick at 22. So I don't, I don't know. There'd be no way. And there's no I way to project would be out two, three years. The top players that have these deals years in advance, the Fernando Cruz, the Maeas, the Perdomos mm -hmm. that slip a few spots in international rankings for, for upside. 
like Leo Dallas DeVries came on late. He he really burst onto the scene after he hit a growth spurt about 16 months ago, 18 months ago. And his mm-hmm. bonus number grew actually because the Padres realized, oh man, we've got a we got a real dude here. Um, so I, I'm just saying like the guys that the guys that it would hurt would be the guys that probably peak at 14 or 15, which might not be bad yeah. for the game. But it is ultimately bad for those specific players in that moment. But it would be better for players that are now going to get that it would money be better. that otherwise wouldn't. It, and those players would be, would be better. The players that, for the most part, would deserve it, right? The better yeah, players, yeah. Should I mean, get the more, the most money. Look at look at Emil, look at Emil Morales. I mean, yeah, two sides of the coin. Morales got probably. I'm not going to put a dollar value on it, but he would have gotten way more had there been a had there been a draft. So yeah, it helps some and it hurts some. Yeah, I have no problem with the the players getting paid per how the teams see their their value in a draft just like a draft like i have no issue with that i'm not trying to take money out of anybody's pocket any specific person's pocket but if you're getting paid based on uh how that profession as a whole kind of sees your your future i mean that's what it's all about i mean that's that's how it works everywhere else churchill free market stand (laughs) <laughs> uh, I mean, you know, the the draft isn't exactly free market, but no, I do think it would be. I do do think it would be better yeah. for major league baseball. I'm not 100 percent sure it's better for the kid, but I think it would be better for major league baseball if there were a draft. And I do think there's some benefits to the kid for that too. Anyway, so yeah. getting back to this year's class, um, before we move on and, and talk Josh Hader, um, the we talked about some of the top names. Um, we talked about the top name, and it seems like he's pretty clearly the number one guy. Um, are there clubs out there? Are there, there t- maybe two or three? Give us two or three who had really strong classes, including one that may not be getting the attention you think it deserves at this point. And granted, like these kids are 16, 17 years old. It's really, really early in the process. So the information is, you know, certainly limited. But if you're having to come to some level of conclusion today, you know, who had, who are the two or three best signing classes? including a sneaky good one you like well i think the dodgers and i'm gonna say the dodgers even though it feels like a bit of a cop-out emil morales on public boards is ranked way too low and it's one thing that is not totally understood on social media from from baseball fans and prospect fans is you know mlb pipeline and this is not a i'm not bashing these publications MLB Pipeline and Baseball America, for the better part of leading up to International Signing Day, do not rank players based on skill and upside. They rank them based on bonus. Right. Like who's going to get the biggest bonus? And then they go, you know, one to a hundred or whatever. So that mm-hmm. isn't indicative of who the best players are. So you're going to see Emil Morales in the 10 to 15 range for the Dodgers all over the place. Um, mm-hmm. But he, I, I think he was the second best prospect in this class. So you know, and they got him for a good deal. So I'd say the Dodgers did very, very well here. And and we're going to look back and, you know, look at, look back at Julio Rodriguez. Julio Rodriguez was like eight to 10 yeah. back in 20. No, Marte as well. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And both of those guys ended up uh, being the best players, arguably from their classes. So Dodgers crushed it. I think the Texas Rangers had a really good class. And this is coming on the heels of a year when they landed Sebastian Wolcott, who had a meteoric rise leading up to their international signing day. I love Paulino Santana. I think he's a top 10 player in this class. I've had uh, directors tell me he's a top five player in this class. Uh, 
Mm-hmm. He can switch it. He can really run. He's got really fast hands, good body, um, power from the left side. Like I think he's going to be a stud. I think he's going to be one of the better players from this class. And also, I really like uh, Yolfren Castillo for, out of Venezuela for the Rangers. I think he's uh, got a chance to uh, stick at shortstop and, and maybe add a little bit of power. The team that I think uh, had a really sneaky international signing day is actually the Angels, um, which is I think this says a lot because the Angels are a team that is kind of criticized quite a bit. Joshua Lugo is a monster at 6'3", 185. He might end up at third base. There's a lot of Noel V. Marte in the entire package. Tons of right-handed power. It's a simple swing with a ton of bat speed. Um, but this is a really this is class. a really big kid, right? This is a kid he's who's already like 6'3", six, three and, six, three and 190. And, and yeah, and he's just turning yeah. 17 this month. But you could make the argument that he's a right fielder too. Like it's it's plus arm strength, sure. it's plus speed right now, it's plus raw power, maybe more. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, it's got and, and while that's too. a thing, and while that's a thing, and I think we all understand why why you said that because getting that at shortstop is a lot different than getting that in right field. But to to counter that, I think you'd agree with this. If I told you Julio Rodriguez was a right fielder right now, he'd still be the best guy in that class, right? Because he's hitting. Yeah, but the thing is, like Julio Rodriguez, when he signed in 2017, was already a right fielder. And credit sure. to Julio Rodriguez, he's actually done what nobody does, which is move inside the middle of the field. Right. So when you're, which is crazy, considering he was like six three. I think that's about how big he was when he signed six three one eighty five. Yeah, yeah, that's how. Um, and now but anyway, two twenty five and and staying in center somehow. But yeah, so yeah. that doesn't necessarily mean that like Lugo can't be a can't be a star of some sort. It just means that uh, you know there's a little more pressure on him to 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 hit big. Is all. Yeah. Is, 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 I think some people take that. Yeah, but he can't play shortstop. Well, I mean, uh, not that you said that. Happen. You didn't say that either. But you said this might be a guy who ends up having to go to right field because he is big. And I, I think that's the big the the thing that stands out most about Lugo when you just look at his basic profile. Guy that's basically 190 pounds already at, at 16 years yeah. old. You don't see that a whole lot. No, and if if you can ever buy a bat at this age, and you think it has any chance of staying on the dirt, mm-hmm. you buy it. Like yeah. if if this is Noel V. Marte, you got a really good player. But I I do want to add, I Hayden Alvarez is an outfielder from the Dominican Republic who I had in my top 30. Again, another six foot two inch really good glove and a guy that was a better performer in the in-game and tournament circuits than a lot of his peers like the guy just hit arms like mm-hmm. he may not have the physical tools at the plate yet of some of his uh, some of his contemporaries in this class um but he performed and he can play center field so i i don't know and i just i i like the angels because those two guys really stand out and it's cheating a little bit, but they have a bat in 2025 that's coming that looks like, um, Oh God, I can't even remember his name. Uh, the Royals catcher. Uh, what's his name, Jason, what's going on with my brain? Who are you talking about? Which the the Royals catcher? Who's the Royal starting catcher from the last 15 years? Salvador Perez. Yeah. He, he that's looks, the guy you couldn't think of, <laughs> dude. I couldn't think of Sal. I couldn't think of the Hall of Fame catcher. That's the why I was so puzzled. I was like, you can't be talking about Salvi. <laughs> the kid in 2025 
looks like Salvador Perez. And okay. I'm just really looking forward to him being in pro ball, which I understand is 18 months away. But I think mm-hmm. the Angels are doing some really good things right now in international scouting. Which guy is that? His name is uh, Gabriel Davalillo. Okay. I tweeted about him last week. And uh, for a kid that has the strength and thickness in his lower half, I always am kind of weird about talking about a, the frame of a kid that's 16, but that's sure. part of the job. Yeah. Yeah. The kid has strength and thickness in his lower half, and it's distributed pretty well. But he still has some of the twitchiest hips I've seen for a kid that age and that size that just make. And that's kind of what um, this is going. That's on kind here, of, this, this is going. On here, <laughs> that's kind. Of, that's kind of what Salvi does, right? Like the guy Salvi moves offensively at the plate so well for a guy that has like 180 pounds below the belt. So are you and saying just, are you saying that despite the fact I'm that he's like thirty five years old, Salvador Perez has super twitchy hips? No, but I'm saying <laughs> you would never expect a guy to move like Salvi moves. Sure, at his size with his with the tread on his tires, like yeah. I don't know. Davalio looks looks very exciting from an offensive See, perspective. So the Angels had a had a sneaky good uh, sign. They had a, they signed a lot of guys. Did they sign the most guys? I think it was fifteen players deep. I I don't know. I. That's a, that's a lot of guys. You just, you don't see that don't a whole lot. You know, usually you see teams, they get to eight, 10, 11, at least this early in the process. Cause there yeah. are kids. I mean, the, the, the limit is uh, the minimum requirement is still 16 years of age. So there are some kids that are turning 16, you know, coming up that will, uh, that may sign, you get some scragglers like that. But uh, for the most part, yeah. these kids are, are 16 and closer to 17, if not already 17 years old. That's a lot of guys in that uh, angels class, uh, 15 players. Uh, good stuff there. The international free agent period. I I do miss it being in July, Joe. I do because I think you get a full like you get I, a full DSL season now. I I miss it. Yeah, I do miss the the just as far as the announcement goes because we're getting close to the All Star break. We're too far away from the trade deadline. I like that little like three day news cycle of the international. But uh, like I talked about last week, if you turn this into an event, if you make a draft out of this. And you turn it into the to an event, and you do it the week or two weeks after the Super Bowl, as camps, as spring camps are opening up, uh, you kind of tie it together with spring training as the kickoff to the the twenty twenty four Major League Baseball season. And I think you have yourselves a little mini marketing opportunity if you're Major League Baseball as well. So uh, I don't know. We'll see what uh, we'll see what they do with uh, with international uh, amateur free agents. Anyway, all right. Josh Hader has a new home. Uh, and it only took Joe five years and ninety-five million dollars to get him there, and he has landed uh, in Houston with the uh, with the defending American League West champion, two-time uh, world champion over the last seven years, uh, the Houston Astros. Um, yeah. Initial thoughts on five and ninety-five for a uh, uh, for a reliever who's going to be thirty in April. Coming off, I will say probably his worst season, the worst season of his major league career. Even though a lot of people will look at that ERA of under one point three and say, "Churchill, what the hell are you talking about?" There are a lot of signs here that you know, like this isn't necessarily he's still good, but this isn't necessarily the most dominant uh, version of Josh Hader moving forward. Yeah, I think it's about fifteen million dollars richer than I was expecting. I, you know, I talked texted about this last week. I, I was expecting five and eighty. 
mm-hmm. maybe five and 75 for a team to go to that fifth year on a reliever in in the first place um i thought four and i thought four and 65 or five and 75 was going to be with five and 80 as kind of the peak so five and 95 is a little rich now he is only 29 he's going to pitch 30 31 32 33 and 34 there have been much worse contracts doled out uh for relievers in the last five years um one of them I on, think, the, on the Astros. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the, the we'll talk about that deal in a second. Great. Um, I think it says a couple of things. So, one, do I think he's in decline? I think, I think he got absolutely shelled uh, for a few weeks there, and that kind of ballooned his numbers a little bit, including his batted ball metrics and his ex- expected run values. Uh, for the most part, I think he was a dominant reliever for four mm-hmm. months. Mm-hmm. Now, that being said. I do think, first of all, f- like find me a, a a long reliever deal that has worked out. I they're yeah, yeah. they I don't mean, exist. You'd probably have to uh, quantify worked out because I think, you, you, but you're right, Joe. You, you'd have to define it differently with the reliever because you kind of know they're not going to work out. If you're giving a guy four yeah. or five years to pitch in your bullpen. It's not going to work out the way that a starting pitcher contract would, or a first base contract would, or a third base contract would. That's no. just kind of the nature of it. Getting back to haters' uh, potential decline, uh, draw your own conclusions. But uh, I look at, despite the fact that the ERA was uh, was amazing, um, he uh, a, a career worst thirteen percent walk rate, a his second lowest strikeout rate of his career. Uh, and almost 10% lower than it was in 2021. Uh, the lowest swinging strike rate of his career. Uh, the lowest home run per fly ball rate of his career, which is probably not sustainable. And he does bounce around there quite a bit. Um, he's had three seasons in his career where it was under 10%, but he's had f- three seasons in his career where it was over 15%. So which version of Josh Hader are you going to get when it comes to the home run in that ballpark? particularly against righties and he's a lefty uh in that ballpark in the, the juice box as uh, as i like to call it. I, don't, I think there are signs of decline it's not like i think he's going to completely fall off the uh uh fall off the table uh we're still talking about a guy who uh you know throws 95 still miles an, an hour yeah he's still, still 95 an elite and will touch 98 99 and 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 has two other pitches and doesn't throw his change up a whole lot it's mostly fastball slider but still misses a lot of bats and all that good stuff so uh a couple of things that are interesting to me about uh about the signing the the first thing i think of is i think the astros probably wanted to sign a starter and couldn't get anybody on a number they liked so they spent this money on a reliever uh because i think we both like ryan presley quite a bit uh yeah. I like Brian Abreu plenty as the third best guy in that pen. So did they need Josh Hader? No. Does he make them better? He absolutely does. But Joe, uh, the Astros are now paying in 2024, assuming Hader's 2024 uh, paycheck is going to be essentially the AAV, almost $20 million a year. They're going to be paying three guys over $45 million. That's Rafael Montero at 11 and a half, Ryan Presley at 14, and Hader nearly $20 million in 2024. That is more money than most teams, almost all teams, will spend on their entire bullpen. And they've doled that out to three guys. Yeah. I wonder if there's a no trade clause because it screams a type of deal where Hader is moved in 2026 in July. Mm-hmm. It just screams like, hey, he's having a pretty good year, you know. 
Bregman has fallen off. Altuve has fallen off. Verlander is gone. The Astros are trying to stay relevant. They're having a bad year. Um, It screams to me a deal where Hayter spends two and a half years in Houston. But what it also tells me is I, I think Houston understands that it's an aging roster. It's a poor farm system. The window is closing. Why don't we go get one of the most elite electric relievers we can to try and push this thing open for another two years? Because coming into before they signed Hater, I looked at Houston as like a 92 win team, like definitely a team that is probably going to um, be a favorite and compete for the AL West crown. Now it's probably a 95 win team uh, with a a lot of options at the back of their bullpen. So I think um, one thing this does also, Joe is um, like Hunter Brown. He had a good year last year, but the thoughts on Hunter Brown have been, okay, you know, he can start. He's not necessarily great. Sometimes he looks great. Maybe this is a guy who, who belongs in the bullpen. I think this ends all discussion about Hunter Brown in 2024. That guy's in their starting rotation. So they do have Verlander coming back, however good he is at 400 years old. Framber Valdez, one of the best left-handers in baseball. Christian Javier is a great mid-rotation guy. Uh, and then it falls off a little bit from there unless Hunter Brown steps in and takes another step forward. So I think that's some some indirect value that signing a guy like Hayter uh, allows the Astros to do is just complete. And they could have made that choice anyway, but now they're at least yeah. covered in the bullpen and won't necessarily be enticed to do that. I just, you know, whether it's Jose Urquidy or Lance McCullers Jr. or Luis Garcia uh, at the back end with, uh, or, or JP France at the back end with, uh, um, with Hunter Brown, but it looks like, you know, you got a pretty good top four there with Verlander, Valdez, Javier, and uh, and Hunter Brown. And, and maybe that was part of the conversation as well in, in signing a guy like Hader. Here's a question for you. Does because I haven't looked it up, does this push the Astros over the CBT? Uh, I don't believe over it does. Tech? I don't believe it does, okay. but I will look that up. I as don't we're think talking. it does either. I don't think it does either. And all we've heard, especially with the TV situation going on, is that Jim Crane will not go over the luxury tax. So yeah. my question for you is, what's by the way, what's the tax number? Do you know what it is? Two thirty-seven. Then they're over. They are over. Yeah, they're over for interesting. 24. Yeah, interesting. By barely, barely. So it's not okay. Well, big... you only have to pay a tax on what on the overage, right? It's just but... they're over. They're over by like five million dollars, something like that. I, I, I mean, you could. They might be able to find a way to shave that. But my question for you is, this has to play a part in whether Alex Bregman and Jose Altuve are going to be long for Houston. I'm sure one returns, Mm -hmm. but I have a hard time seeing both of those guys fit into the budget for the future. I'm not sure why Houston would want to sign Alex Bregman to a long-term deal. I'm not sure why you'd want to do that. It's not the type of player that would age well. And and he's already making a ton of money. He's probably not going to take a pay cut from Houston. Yeah. What is it? Twenty um, five. Yeah. Yeah. But, but what's he going to get in free agency? Like he's making twenty million dollars a year average on his current deal that ends at the end of the season, and he's twenty nine years. He's going to be thirty in March, basically as the season starts. And while he's a good player, he's been a he was a five and a half win player last year. He was at this past season. He was a, over a four win player. There's a little bit of injury history in there. Nothing significant. But what is he from age thirty moving forward? I mean, maybe the Matt Chapman deal will tell us a lot about Alex Bregman's, the possibility for Alex Bregman, and we don't know what the Matt Chapman result is uh, is going to be. But if you're if you're Houston, I don't think you can keep Bregman. I mean, you have Kyle Tucker and Framber Valdez to worry about long term. 
you have not inked those guys to long-term deals. You're basically paying both those guys $12 million in arbitration this year. You're not going to let those guys walk, right? And it might no. come down to, considering where they are uh, payroll-wise, it might come down to, you know, are we keeping Alex Bregman or are we keeping Framber Valdez? Or are we keeping Alex Bregman or are we keeping Kyle Tucker? And you have to think they're going to favor the two younger players. Without question. You know the worst thing to happen to Alex Bregman is DJ LeMayu. Like he is such a telltale sign for a guy that both LSU guys got the most both LSU shortstops. Yeah. Yeah, actually, I didn't even think of that angle. Um yeah. but no, I mean you look at what LeMayhew did in his only year with New York before signing a massive extension was he took advantage of a short porch. Mm-hmm. He lived on bat to ball skills. He was able to move around the diamond. And I think you could make the case while Bregman is at least three inches shorter than LeMahieu. I think LeMahieu's like six five. I he's huge. He's a, he's a big guy. I think he's listed as he's six a, four at least. So so he's yeah, got he's four enormous. Inches on Bregman. Yeah. Bregman might only be five eleven too. So you're right. Yeah. So LeMahieu in that one year with with New York was like a five and a half win player, five point seven win player. Yeah. And I think that's what you're looking at with Bregman right now on the cusp of of needing to be signed somewhere. Um I just without the Crawford boxes with his body aging and he's had some chronic injuries over the years that have been soft tissue. I just, I just feel like Alex Bregman is going to settle into being a two, two and a half win player uh, sooner rather than later. Yeah. It's what guess, LeMay yeah. you have. Let's and that's kind of what, and that's kind of what he was in 2020 and 2020 and 2021. Although 2020 was a shortened season in 2021, he only played 91 games, but that's the kind of value you might get. Uh, at some point moving forward. Yeah, that's going to be interesting. I think I really do think the Matt Chapman deal might tell us what the market thinks about players uh, of that ilk. Um, Chapman yeah. being less of a hitter than Bregman is, I think, a little bit um, and more of a defender, although both players can do a little bit of both. Uh, but I think that market's going to tell us a lot, not just in the number, but in you know how aggressive the number is in general, suggesting how teams are valuing that kind of a player at this point the the 29 30 year old third baseman that's clearly not on the upside of his career i don't want to say downside as if they only have a year left uh we'll see every year i think bregman's going to completely fall off the table he goes out and hits 260 360 with 25 homers uh but you made a good point without the crawford boxes what does that look like because we're talking about a guy who uh uh from a power standpoint like you can't see those numbers um they don't struggle away from home. You look at last year, he was better on the road, power-wise and average-wise. But those Crawford boxes do help him. But not the exit velo numbers. Right. And and I know that I know that the you can go to Savant and you can point to, oh, he would have had 24 home runs instead of 25 if he played every game at Miami right. or you know, name your name your park. But it's not that. It's the okay, but now he's 32 and he was never more than average raw power. It was already a guy that, yeah, he parked it in the second or third row every single time. And he's All of not a sudden, a big, now it's not that. And he's not a big exit velo guy anyway. We're talking That's about my guy point. Who's, whose average exit velo is under 89 miles an hour, and it has been for the last two years. And it was only, and he only has one season 89 or better, and that was 2021. Yeah. So this is so a guy while who's he, lifting and taking advantage of, of that ball. He has a feel for the barrel, right? Yeah. He has a feel for that ideal launch angle. When he loses, even a mile and a half from that average, mm-hmm. he goes from a 25 home run guy to a 14 to 15 home run guy. And, you know, then it's like, man, this guy better be hitting 285, 290 and, you know, staying healthy. And I, I think at that point, it's like, I don't want to give, I don't want to give $25 million to that. 
Yeah, that's that's got to be the concern. Uh, never been a big barrel rate guy. Career five and a half percent was at five point four a year ago. Never been a a, a high hard hit rate guy. Thirty eight percent a year ago, thirty seven percent before that, thirty seven percent for his career. So he's he's not that that guy that's like, well, he's just creaming the ball. We just we we, we need to change this or that. He's actually maxing out everything, uh, despite the fact that uh, that he doesn't necessarily hit the ball. All that hard, yeah. That's a that's a decision they have to make. And you know what? Signing Josh Hader to a to a deal that's worth almost twenty million dollars a year doesn't help the Houston Astros keep Alex pregnant. That's like, my point. I, if Crane is going to stay under that, yeah. yeah. If Crane is going to stay con- comfortably under the luxuries tax, I don't know where you find twenty five million dollars for Alex Bregman. Kyle Tucker is right around the corner, and mm-hmm. I would imagine they're going to want to keep him, and he's going to be a thirty million dollar guy without even batting an eye yeah yeah that's a that's a 200 plus million dollar contract waiting to happen even as an extension and he's got uh i think he's got one more year of our i think he's making 12 this year this coming season 2024 and he's got one more year of arbitration left before free agency he will be he just turned 27 years old so if you sign him to an extension now you'd be getting him for his age 27 if you signed him to seven years it'd be his age 27 to 33 seasons he's getting 200 plus million dollars even on an extension if he gets he's, the free agency, it might be 250. He's twice the player Cody Bellinger is right now. And I don't mean that as a slam on Cody Bellinger. I mean, yeah. there's a lot of red flags in what Cody Bellinger does. That does not exist in Kyle Tucker. Yeah, we just got done talking about like hard hit rates and barrel for uh, for Bregman, uh, average exit velocity, over 90 miles an hour every year of his career, Kyle Tucker. Uh, uh, let's see, uh, uh, over 10% barrel rate, over uh, 44% hard hit rate, and certainly peaking the last couple of years. He had an absolute monster. Uh, the, the last three years, by the way, I, I like to do this, 2021 through 2023 for Kyle Tucker, 278, 353, 517 with 89 bombs, two seasons of 30 homers and a season of 29, and he's played 140, 150, and 157 games. This is a real. This is a borderline star in this league. This is a oh, perennial all star. This is yeah. a, this is a guy who is top 10 MVP. This is uh, this is a really good player, and I do think they're going to pay him. I do think. How many stolen bases? Uh, let's see. Uh, he had 30 this past year and 25 a year ago. Yeah. So he is a 25, 25 guy without breaking a sweat. Yeah, maybe maybe he goes for 30 30 this year. With an enormous arm in right field. Yeah. Yeah. Good defender. Yeah. This is a complete player. The biggest thing for him, too, is um he's gone from a guy who chased quite a bit early in his career and had some success despite that to a guy who, I mean, he just hit 284. Um yeah. might end up might end up hitting 300. He's uh, a stud. Yeah. And 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 we're we're talking about a high contact guy, too. 15% strikeout, 14% strikeout. This is this is a really, really good player. Like I would, you know, he's not Ronald Acuna Jr., but he's in that that tier right under the the absolute superstars in the league. This is a really good player. He's um, he's everything that George Springer was when George Springer left Houston to become a free agent. Everything and more. Yeah. Yeah, I'd say so. And probably a, a little more player this year. And probably a little more coveted around the league simply because he's left-handed. Without question. And yeah. younger. I mean, he's going to be at least two years younger than when Springer went to free agency. Was Springer a 30-year-old free agent? I actually think he played his first year in Toronto at 31. Yeah. Maybe. Because he he came out of the University of Connecticut. I don't Mm -hmm. think he actually debuted for the Astros until he was 23 and maybe 24. First first year in Toronto was uh, was 20. I guess that would have been 2021. Yeah, he was 31. 
Yep, he was 31. 31 yeah, year Tucker's going to be 29 in his yeah, first so year on, least, on a new deal. At least two years ahead. Yep. Yep. Certainly. Uh, really quick before we go, we talk a lot of draft with you, Joe. Um, uh, it's, uh, I'm not really sure why you don't know anything about the draft, but um, <laughs> <laughs> I'm just out here making stuff up. <laughs> um, we, we talked a couple of months ago about, um, about a mock draft you posted at futurestarseries.com that was model based. Um, and that was basically, you know, kind of how teams like what teams value in a player, um, whether it be athleticism or whether it be data or, um, or whether it be age. Uh, the age factor in the draft is a real thing, and I, and I think there are a couple of questions that we could uh, that we could ask here. But I want to start with the twenty twenty four class. I, I think sometimes I think the biggest thing that comes up and, and is the biggest topic of conversation when age of a player in a draft comes up is a prep player who's a little older than you'd like them to be. So maybe start with the twenty twenty four class and talk about how. You know, if there, if there, are there any players that that are they're supposed to go round one? Any players where this is a factor for them uh, early, particularly in the the prep class? Uh, you don't want to, you know, I mean, you don't want to draft a twenty year old high school player, right? Not 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 round one. That's a different player. That's a different human being than if he was 17, 18 years old, right? Are there players that could be impacted by this in the first round of the twenty twenty four class? I mean, a lot of the guys at the top of the twenty twenty four class are class ups from 2025 in the first place like connor griffin is by considered by most to be a top 10 player in the 2024 class he was in 2025 and he classed up because he was going to be 19 and four months old in 2025 now he's going to be 18 and four months old in 2024 it's just a lot more appealing profile it's a lot younger uh it's more on par with his peers and and that's why he did it and, and you could say the same about uh, Cam Caminiti, who is going to be, I think, 18.2 in this class because he was going to be 19 in 2025. And also Noah Franco, who is going to be, I think, 18.3 in this class because he was going to be 19.3 in 2025. So um, these are all, players early, these are all early picks. These are all early guys. These are right? all top 40 picks. Yeah, these are all top 40 picks. And Cam and, and Connor, uh, Connor Griffin could be top 15 picks. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I mean, there's a lot that goes into it. Um, and you just look better on models. And especially if if you're a kid that is 18 years old, or if you're a kid that is, is supposed to be drafted at 19 years old, if you're not absolutely bludgeoning and dominating the competition as a 19 and three months year old against playing against 18 year olds, teams are going to see that and they're going to say, okay, if this 19 and a couple months year old isn't dominating high school ball, how are we supposed to trust him to dominate low A right out of the gates? Mm-hmm. And do we really want to stick a 19-year-old at the complex level only yeah, for the first there? full yeah. season at 20? Yeah. Yeah, it doesn't make a lot of sense. So um, for me personally, I think it is a much bigger impact on pitchers, high school pitchers, because the stuff just has to be so big for you to be mm-hmm. drafted as a high school pitcher. I mean, actually, here's another way to look at it. Look at this 2024 class. Um, three of the top 100 guys from three of the top 100 guys on my board, at least Tristan Smith at Clemson, Andrew Dukanich at Vanderbilt and Eli Jerzembic at South Carolina. They were all on in my top 50 overall players in 2022. 
None of them got drafted. None of them got paid because teams are like, well, I don't want to pay a high school pitcher who's 19 years old, three and a half million dollars to sit at the complex level for as a 19 year old and then play his first year at low A as a 20 year old. It just, right. right. There's more incentive to pay an 18 year old who's, who is, is competing against the same kids and uh, pumping the same stuff. So I get it. It sucks for those kids, but I get it. Yeah. Yeah. That's why we're seeing a lot of the, the reclassification stuff. And, and this has been going on for years. I mean, Bryce Harper did it, you know, in, in, in a way of crying out loud by, uh, by qualifying out of high school and then going to the College of Southern Nevada and and being drafted as a a nine year old it seems um that was <laughs> have I ever told you about that like I I was at ESPN at that point and watching Bryce Harper as I'm trying to think how old he would have been um I guess he would have been seventeen he was seventeen yeah. I think he turned eighteen that October but in February March at College of Southern Nevada. He's 17 years old. And the first day I see him, he catches because he was a catcher in high school. He catch and dude could have caught. Like Bryce, I think that's the thing that people don't necessarily realize. If you're a younger fan, you don't realize in 2010, um, you know, when Bryce Harper was, you know, 17, 18 years old, he uh he could have caught like the athleticism, but he caught the first night and looked every bit the part. Like scouts were like, yep, like this is this is a dude. This is this is a guy who can catch. And they'd, they'd go out and hit three doubles and a homer uh, against you know players that were two and three years older than he was at a JC, and it was against Chipola. <laughs> it wasn't like he was playing some random, you know, yeah. Southwest Missouri State, you know, community college. He's playing some of the bigger, you know, schools, and 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 Chipola had a bunch of guys drafted, uh, including Levon Washington that year, by the way. Um, and then the next day, Bryce Harper goes out there and plays center field. <laughs> it's like. What in the world are we watching here? And looks every bit the part. And scouts are like, hmm, this is interesting. Okay. And then the next day he plays third base. Three days in a row he went catcher, center field, third base. Raked every single time. Wasn't getting a whole lot of hit the second couple of days. Uh, one of the most amazing displays of uh, uh, of, of baseball, natural baseball ability. But he was one of the first guys that I can remember anyway that kind of reclassified in a way. Yeah. Um, and he would have won. They would have won the junior college championship if he <laughs> didn't. I think it was against San Jacinto. He argued balls and strikes in game one. Yeah, and he got suspended for the rest of the uh, yeah. JUCO World Series. And yeah. his team he lost like ten nothing in game two. He was really difficult to pitch to. He was, and and you know it's funny you mentioned that too because um, that was the only question about him. Is he going to be level headed enough to develop and get to the big leagues, be able to handle all this? And when you think about that right now, like it's amazing, by the way, that Bryce Harper's only 31 years old right now. <laughs> yeah. He's, he's done, I'm 33 and he's older than I am at 31, which is kind of incredible. He's done everything. He's had an unbelievable, like remarkable career. I mean, he's been worth almost 50 war already. Um, he's 31 years old and he's still going and still going pretty strong, but uh, it, it's, he's been in the league forever. Um, but yeah, that was the question. Like, is this just a hothead? Can we take the chance, you know, on this guy? And he's one of the most like level-headed yet fierce competitors in all of Major League Baseball right now. I I, I love Bryce Harper, but yeah, that was uh, that was fun. So getting back to the 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 age fact, it's a it's a real thing. In your experience with the information that you have, with the conversations that you have, do you get the sense that that age maybe sometimes in some instances with some clubs and some scenarios is too much of a factor? 
That's a good question. Um, I think because what, really, what's the what's the difference between nineteen point one and eighteen point six? Really, I mean, it's a half a year. Like, how is that quantified? I guess that's the question. I would. How are you quantifying this? You know, like what? Yeah, is I mean, the I, difference? I guess it depends on it depends on. <laughs> that's a great question. I, I I think it depends on the player. Like some, you look at some players. Like you look at Cole Cole Young when Cole Young was drafted as a nineteen year old. Um, Cole Young was small and hitterish mm-hmm. and cold weather and uh like he had rawness about his game because he hadn't played as much ball as guys in texas and california and florida so there's an aspect of training age there where it's like okay this guy is he hasn't played as much baseball as some of his peers he's kind of smaller still and you see what he did in his first full year as a 20 year old in 2023 he got much bigger he got very comfortable. Some of the power started to come on once he got to, mm-hmm. to high A. So I think depending on something called training age, like where they've played, where they're coming from, I think teams will weigh that much differently than just normal than just normal age. Like if but, Cole Young was a kid who grew up in Texas and played in Texas and had a like like maybe he gets drafted somewhere different, like maybe he goes 10 spots lower or something. Is that kind of like what, what you're saying? I mean, like if he maybe. grew up in Texas or Florida or California, he might look different. He might be 10 pounds heavier. He might um, have developed game power. He, I think if Cole Young grew up in Texas because he's only six foot, I think he probably goes in the 30 to 40 range. There are other examples of guys that were 19 or basically 19, like Jared Kelnick mm-hmm. and Colson Montgomery and Brett Beatty. Those guys were 19, but they were extremely physically developed. And you already knew that they were what they were supposed to look like as a 19-year-old. Cole Young is kind of the outlier because he looked like a 19-year-old, but he looked like an 18-year-old. Um, right. So, Or a 17-year-old, yeah. Or exactly. a 17-year-old, yeah. But yeah. then there's the other side of the coin, too, where it's like, I like using uh, Seattle because it's of the proximity. Colt Emerson was a six foot one inch, 208 pound shortstop who was barely 18. And he was from Ohio and he was killing the competition for Team USA. And because of his age, he shot up, shot way upwards, even mm-hmm. though he's probably just going to be a second or third baseman. So, um, I know that got kind of confusing, but I think it just comes down to to training age. Like, what does the body look like? What does the performance look like? Um, if he is 19, is he already bludgeoning the competition? I think the one in that group that that is most interesting to me is Colson Montgomery. Colson Montgomery was pretty raw and kind of soft bodied uh, when he was taken by the White Sox at like 12 when mm-hmm. he was taken and he was 19 and um, he actually didn't play for Team USA. And I don't think he was a major standout until the spring mm-hmm. on the tournament circuit. I think so, he fell a little bit and went in the 20s, and that's why the White Sox got him, but you're right. Oh, um, did he go in the 20s? Okay, yeah. Yeah, I think it was like 22. I'm looking it up. It's 22 overall uh, in 2021. But yeah, 6'3", 200, big kid, you know, shortstop all over his, his track record. But, but still kind of uh, gangly and wonky when he was drafted. I remember watching him in like March and April, and it was like the swing was still kind of disconnected, but there was a ton of bat speed. And he was that's kind of half years old. That's kind of the outlier. Where it's and credit, hey, credit to Colson. He's shot up the minors. He's been a little hurt, but he shot up the minors. He might debut this year. He might play shortstop still. Um, yeah, the, yeah, we the, haven't, the we haven't seen the power with him yet. By the way, um, not what it could become. Yeah, yeah. 
Yeah, this is a kid with with legitimate bat speed. But there is hit tool here. That that's fun because yeah. that's one of the things you worry about. Like he's older, so you kind of want to challenge him a little bit. But do you challenge him? You know, a little too much, and he struggles to develop because you want a kid that's six three two ten to hit the ball out of the ballpark a little bit if you can. You know, do you yeah. at least want him to be Lorenzo Cain or something in in that way? Even if he sticks at shortstop, you want to be able to hit fifteen homers. We haven't really seen that uh, in the minors. I think he hit eight last year, I believe, which was uh, uh, one more than uh, or two fewer actually than he hit the the previous year. But he got all the way to double A at uh, twenty one years old. So that's a that's an interesting. That's an interesting one um, because it kind of goes, doesn't that go against kind of what would necessarily suggest, yeah, he's 19, but let's go ahead and take him because if he was six, three and one seventy five, like, I'm like, well, he's okay. Like he's 19, but like, he's going to add 20 pounds in the next three years. Like I see the physical projection here, but if he's already 190 yeah. or 195 pounds, like that's a different story. Right? So the white Sox kind of went against convention and just tried to draft the He's a weird player. one. Yeah. He's a weird one. I mean, there are things like, so 19 and a half at the draft, still kind of awkward and gangly. Uh, wasn't, wasn't, he just wasn't dominating his competition. He was in Indiana, but he wasn't on the show. He wasn't against top tier arms. He wasn't showing power yet. Um, but then you look at it, it's like, well, he's from Indiana. He's committed to the University of Indiana. Signability should be no issue. Nobody... All due respect to the Hoosiers, uh, Indiana does not hold its baseball commits if they have pro, you know, pro commitments. Sure. Um, yeah, he, you know, looking back, he's a very he'll be an interesting case study because he probably goes against all of the age uh, requisites yeah. that you and I were just talking about. Yeah, and he got he got over slot. He got three million bucks. So That's the White a lot. Sox, the White Sox really felt like they like this was the guy, despite the age thing, despite the, you know, there weren't a lot of obvious things, obvious conclusions you could come to with it with a kid like that. Um, so they, they certainly took a chance if that works. To their out. credit, he's he's yeah. worked out to this point. He's yeah, yeah last he's year in uh, combined in uh, uh, at three spots, including uh, uh, forty five plate appearances in the complex league to uh, to get going. Uh, he uh, hit almost 300 with a, a over 400 on base and 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 plenty of power to believe in. He just didn't play a lot. Um, if he has a full season in 2024. We might see that 15, 18 home runs uh, occur. So uh, that'd be an interesting one to watch. Got to write him on the whiteboard and uh, keep track of him. Joe, uh, one of my favorite things about uh, about baseball in general is the waves that everything comes in. Uh, the amateur season uh, kicks off in February. In, in most parts of the country, March for some others, even April in, in some northern areas. But we certainly get D1 baseball. We get JUCO baseball in, in late January, February. That's coming up, my friend. So uh, uh, look, uh, everyone needs to check out futurestarseries.com over the next month or so as we roll out organizational top 30 prospects, top 100 prospects. Joe's uh, draft boards are going to all get updated, I believe, uh, 2024, 2025, and 2026. Is that correct, Joe? All three classes yeah. are going to get updated. Uh, so lots of stuff there. Uh, we may have some uh, some cool notes and, and stuff to share from the, uh, the JUCO showdown uh, this weekend. But uh, just as all that really gets rolling in February and March, we get to kick off the big league season and the minor league season. Joe, I, I, do you like the March opening days, by the way? You like starting the season a little bit early. We've had a couple of those the last couple of years. And while I hate the weather, the thing that we battle with the weather, 
sometimes, man, it's like it gets to March 18, March 20, and I'm like, freaking spring training is way too long. <laughs> I just yeah. start the season already. <laughs> you know what I love? I love a March 30th opening day, and I hate the AL East, just pretty <laughs> much the entire division. Uh, yeah, although when you're talking about weather, if that's what you're getting at. Uh, yeah, they Tampa. never play opening day. But like, but but Tampa, and they should because Tampa and Toronto can can roof the place, right? I mean, they're the ones that should. Yeah, but but the major Major League Baseball for some reason schedules a home opener in Minnesota on March twenty. Dude, do you realize in Minnesota? Yeah, Chicago. Do you realize <laughs> in spring training, Robbie Ray is ninety three to ninety five, touching seven last year mm-hmm. in eighty five degree weather, pitching. Mm-hmm three four outings yep and he's asked three days later to go throw five innings in 36 degree windy conditions in minnesota Mm -hmm. and for some reason i can't believe it happened he got hurt (laughs) oh i mean the giants just the giants joe just can't catch a break (laughs) yeah you see what i did there Yeah. yeah, I like that deal. By the way, we didn't really talk about that deal, but uh, I like what the Giants did there. That was uh, that was really interesting. All right, uh, maybe we'll get uh, we'll get uh, Jeremy Booth on next week. We'll talk about this uh, this JUCO showdown and a little bit more about the class of twenty twenty four, maybe even the class of twenty twenty five. Uh, one thing I want to do, Joe, as we move forward and get closer to the draft, is uh, start thinking about the twenty twenty four class and even twenty five twenty six. If you have the the information on, it, and I'm betting you do, uh, comparing it to the class of twenty twenty three. Um, I think that can be really interesting in terms of what the strengths and weaknesses are overall, um, what the demographics look like. Uh, it seems like uh, there are a lot of hitters that are that are going in the top half of, of this year's uh, of the round this year. But uh, I'd like to dig into some of that if we could.